we are more than just our brain states. We are more than just our body chemistry. And we need to understand, well, the whole person. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hey, everyone. My name is Benjamin Quinn. And I'm Nathaniel Williams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. Today we'll talk with Dr. Dolores Morris about artificial intelligence. If you haven't heard about AI, it's all over the place. It's an eye-opening conversation with Dr. Morris. And after that, we'll have another edition of our listener favorite segment entitled On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our new segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, whether that's news or sports or pop culture or business, from a Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about sports. Dr. Quinn, the baseball season is heating up. College football returns this weekend, and the NFL is set to reassert its sports dominance pretty soon as well. But as we think about sports, let's also talk about sports salaries. Dr. Quinn, in some of our conversations outside the podcast, you've talked a lot about inflating athlete salaries, especially in baseball, which is a sport that has no salary cap. Dr. Quinn, what should we make of the ever-rising superstar athlete salaries? Yeah, so first of all, there's a lot, a lot to consider with respect to sports and our faith. And we want to have more of these conversations in the months and years to come because there's so much that sports offers us. When we think about this year's theme is formation. When we think about the kinds of things culturally that form human beings, there are a few things that have a greater formation type of influence than sports. You've heard me talk about this before in my own life. Baseball, basketball, football were my liturgical calendar. They, they formed me deeply into, for the rest of my life. When, when the seasons change and the smells of the outdoors change according to the season, my first association with that smell is football season, baseball season, basketball mm, season, yeah. and for many others, it may be soccer or whatever other sport that they played. When it comes then to critiques, though, and this is, this is just part of how we approach any kind of cultural manifestation as Christians, there are always things that we gain and good things about them, and the structure of these things are beautiful and good and true, but there's also things that can malform us. Salaries is one of these things that I fear is increasingly dehumanizing professional athletes. Now, don't misunderstand. This is not coming from a spirit of I'm jealous of their money or that kind of thing. I'm not saying that that couldn't be there. Certainly, I would love to have that, that kind of money or we might think that we would like to. But here's my concern with it is that I think about I'll just mention three major league baseball players. As you you talked about baseball, Juan Soto uh, just just inked a deal with the Padres that is massive. Um, a few years back, just a couple years ago, Mike Trout probably the best baseball player of our generation right now, and then Bryce Harper. All three of these guys, record-breaking kind of deals, and the, the money is just astronomical, and it continues to climb in that way. And you're also getting sort of a competition from other sports to see, well, who can get more? Soccer, of course, has massive contracts. But we're, we're still within a generation of people who can remember from especially football, basketball, and baseball, that uh, the people who played for their teams, whether that be Boston or maybe it was Cleveland or maybe it was Baltimore, those people still lived in their neighborhoods. You could, you could walk down the street and knock on the door of such and such offensive linemen from Baltimore because they're relatable to you. They're part of your community. And that, that's part of what sports do is that they, there's something for communities to rally around. And 
you know, when Cleveland won a few years ago, uh, when they won the, the NBA championship a few years ago, it was one thing to say Cleveland won. It was something else to see what it did for that community. Um, that, that's part of what sports does. But when we, when we apply so much inflation to the salaries of these players, you actually distance them that much farther from the communities that they're there to, to support and to encourage and to promote unity around. So I think it hurts communities on one side. But secondly, I fear that we're actually dehumanizing these people. I, I cannot imagine the kind of money that Juan Soto or Mike Trout or Bryce Harper make. If I had that kind of money weighing on my shoulders, that kind of pressure, every time I struck out, I would feel like an abject failure. Because I, all I could hear is the, the assumed boos from the crowd of, we're paying you this much and that's all you can do. And when you do have a bad year, you hit a, you hit a hitting slump or whatever the case is, these kinds of ebbs and flows that are natural in sports, uh, it's not about you as a human being. It's only about your performance, which has really turned these, these human beings who are remarkable athletes and community energizers into commodities. And I think we really need to be careful about that. I imagine there are listeners out there hearing you say this and they would think, well, these people are so talented at what they do. There are so few people, like using Mike Trout, who can hit a baseball like he can hit a baseball. Why shouldn't he be paid the amounts that he's paid? How, yeah. how would you respond to that? Yeah, I'm not suggesting that these people shouldn't get paid really well and really handsomely. And, and I'm also not trying to immediately create new rules and sort of be pharisaical about the whole thing. I am saying, though, if, if we start with the principles that, first of all, these are human beings and we want, to continue, we want to further humanize them, and this is my Christian faith really informing this conversation. These are imagers of God. But also part of what sports does, especially professional sports, is that it encourages, energizes, it unifies communities. And so if, if there's anything that we're doing relative to how we celebrate sports and how we pay athletes, the salaries that we pay athletes, that is undermining both of those things, it's actually dehumanizing them because it turns them into a commodity or it distances them further from the communities that they're, they're supposed to encourage and to, to energize, then maybe we just need to step back and reevaluate. Uh, at that point, then maybe just to begin to put some flesh on it, maybe we say, all right, what, what's the average income of the people of these communities? And so maybe we can do it better than that. We don't have to, we don't have to put them at the poverty level or anything like that. Uh, but let's be careful not to pay them so much that, one, they can't hardly even perform because the pressures are so high and they're mere commodities, and that the people that, uh, that are part of the communities that are supposed to rally around these sports and these, these sports teams, they can still relate to them. They're still human beings. Um, but those are the kind of things that I would want to encourage us to approach this, this conversation with. Thank you, Dr. Quinn, for sharing that with us today in our segment called Headlines. Now, let's head to our Christ and Culture conversation with Dr. Dolores Morris. Today we're talking about artificial intelligence with our guest, Dr. Dolores Morris. Dr. Morris is Associate Professor of Instruction in the Philosophy Department at the University of South Florida in Tampa, Florida. Dr. Morris, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. So your area of study is on artificial intelligence and uh, the mind-brain problem. So I have an article in front of me that I'd like to talk to you about. Sure. I can guess well, what it is. <laughs> yes. Um, here, here it is. It's in the Washington Post. It says, Google engineer thinks the company's artificial intelligence has come to life. And in the article, it tells about uh, Blake 
uh, Lamone. I hope I'm saying his name correctly. Uh, if not, he, I could, uh, my apologies, Blake. Uh, but there is a, a, an artificial intelligence program that Google has called Lambda. And some of the conversations that he has had with Lambda has convinced him that this software program has achieved sentience, that it is now a distinct person. Talk to us. What's the status of some of these programs? What's, what's going on with this particular article? So I, I'm sure he's drawing on the insights from Alan Turing, right, who came up with this now famous, he called it the imitation game. We call it the Turing test. Who is Alan Turing and then what is the Turing test? Oh, sure. Well, Turing was a, a code breaker and a mathematician and a philosopher, not a professional philosopher, but clearly some of his writings have philosophical content and implications. And Turing envisioned a computer. He called it a mechanical computer because at the time, a computer was just the job that a person could have. You would show up and run computations. But Turing proposed that we could get machines that could do computations for us, which was a novel idea in and of itself. He was right about that. What he suggested was that if we got to a point where a mechanical computer could pass this test that he conceived, then we ought to conclude that this computer was thinking just like we are. That if we have consciousness, then so must this computer. So how did the test go? It's interesting because it's not at all hard for us to imagine now or to run because it's the kind of thing we do regularly. But at the time, again, this was entirely novel. He thought, what if we just had people come in and sit down at banks of terminals? Um, you couldn't see the thing you were talking to because we're biased. We're, we're inclined to, to think that other humans are talking and, that, and are thinking and that machines are not, right? But what if we set it up so you couldn't see who you were talking with? and you just had a conversation. And some of the things you were conversing with were real people and others were machines. And then at the end, you had to guess whether your conversation partner was a human, a thinker or a machine. So there are really two questions. First, has any computer actually managed to do this to pass the Turing test? And the second question is whether the Turing test even shows what Turing thought that it did. Um, so in the first place, how would you pass the Turing test? You just have to convince as many people that you're a human as the actual humans do. That you're right. The, the power of that uh, paradigm is, seems so intuitive. Right now, I'm, I'm convinced I'm talking to another human being, right. even though we are separated by many miles and are doing this electronically. I really don't think I'm talking to a computer. You seem like a person. That's uh, right. Now, on the other hand, uh, yesterday, I called my pharmacy, and I got an um, you know an answer, and they ask, "Is this about filling a prescription?" And prescription, and I said, you know, "Say answer yes or no." And I said, mm -hmm. "Yes." Uh, and so then they you know asked me to give the number, and I did. And then they said, Are, "Is there anything else?" And by when it was finished, I had no doubt I was talking to a computer program. Right. And I you know there was there was um, this was a bot designed to, to do that sort of thing. If I wanted to talk to that program about baseball scores or the weather, it wouldn't have worked because the silly thing is following a script. That's exactly um, right. So, but Lambda seems to be different. So yes. tell us what, what, what is different here? And then, and then, and then maybe in so doing, you can do the, the second question. question oh, sure. Does the Turing test actually say that there is a person here. 
That's right. And they are. It is important that we keep the questions separate. It's also worth noting that so far, no computer program has managed to really pass the Turing test. So if Lambda really is different in this way, that, that is pretty groundbreaking, right? Different in what way? Well, Lambda does seem to be, based on the transcript that we saw, capable of pretty sophisticated conversation. Computers operate using a computer language, which is rule-governed and syntactical. What does that mean? It's ones and zeros. Computers run a code that is based on the shapes of the symbols involved, the ones and zeros and when they appear in the string. That's not how humans converse. We use meaning. I, I don't only answer the sound of the words that I hear, right? I, I, I glean meaning from those sounds. This is why people who are bilingual can say the same thing in more than one language. Make different sounds, communicate the same content. Up until now, no computer has been able to, to navigate conversation in a way where they seem to be getting meaning from the symbols, right? They just follow the rules. Lambda seems to be able to handle pretty sophisticated conversation which is to say that small transcript, basically what the programmer was saying was, it seems to me, like maybe Lambda passes the Turing test. I've got the uh, transcript, you know, and he says, you know, how can I tell if you actually understand what I'm saying? You know, Lambda says, well, you know, it's because you're reading my words and interpreting them. And I think we're more or less on the same page, aren't we? (laughs) And then the conversation goes on. They start to talk about uh, Miserable. And you know, mm-hmm. what was what was the what was it about? What is it that impressed you? And it said, well, it's themes about justice and injustice and conversations about God and repentance. Yes. Uh, it was it was um, it was quite impressive. Though I have to know, I, I don't know if I mentioned this already, that Google uh, suspended that engineer the very next day. Mm-hmm. So it would seem to in, in, indicate that Google may not have been happy with this engineer, with Blake's uh, claim. Uh, So let's say for the sake of argument that Lambda seems to be a bit different in that it could convince a sufficient number of people that it has passed the Turing test. That brings us to the second thing that you said. Does the Turing test actually prove what Alan Turing claimed it would? That's right. So does it? Okay. I, I would like to go on the record first saying I'm not convinced it would pass the Turing test. To me, it, it read like the bot has definitely been exposed to, you know, spark notes and some basic, some basic conversations on the philosophy around Turing. So to me, there were so many whole phrases that I just, they felt canned to me. So it was very interesting because I had a friend share, a professional philosopher mm-hmm. also, and he said, I just found this really persuasive. So I was surprised to find that when I read it, it it felt less persuasive to me than I expected, but um, mm. maybe I was just coming at it being a little cynical. What, where it really shows up, where you really find out these kinds of things is never gonna be a transcript. It has to be interactive. There's an AI called Sophia that the nation of Saudi Arabia has granted citizenship to. Um, and here's where you really see it. Sophia is clearly a relatively sophisticated AI. And when you see her at performances, it's pretty persuasive. And then when you see her on a talk show or anything where it's where it's off script and it's interactive yeah. conversation, oh my gosh, you just yeah. it just plummets. The ability to spontaneously respond to natural conversation isn't there. So that's what I would want to see with Lambda. But yes, if it did, if it really could in a live real-time conversation, 
um, that covers a variety of topics, if it really could function just like a conversation partner, then Turing says that it really is a conversation partner, that it is thinking in precisely the way that we are thinking. In fact, he says this original question, could a machine think, ends up really being too meaningless to really deserve consideration. He's not convinced we know what this word think really means. And so he thinks the test is a perfect test for it. If it passes the test, we have to conclude that it's thinking. Um, again, like a number of other people, I don't think that he's right about that. I don't believe that he's right about that. The Turing tests tests for a certain kind of ability to handle natural language conversation. It's incredibly difficult. The, the logic of a natural language is so very different from computer languages, it requires very sophisticated, well, information processing. I don't think that necessarily rises to the level of thought because I don't know that it shows the two main things that um, the two main things you want to check for is, is this enough to guarantee real understanding? And in the second place, is this enough to guarantee that this machine is actually having experiences? Both of those, the fact of being an experiencing creature and having semantic understanding, understanding meanings, these seem like important additions that we need to know that there's really thinking going on. That's very helpful. I find your answer both helpful and compelling. But this brings up the worldview that's implicit with the Turing test and the claim that a, a machine made of silicon uh, mm -hmm. with software and electricity uh, can have consciousness and personhood simply bubble up from this, right. uh, from it. And, and I guess this would be a good example of a worldview called physicalism. So what is physicalism and how is it different from perhaps like dualism uh, and the understanding of the relationship of that which is the mind or immaterial and that which is physical? That's right. That's a great question. And I'm actually going to have to introduce a third view here, which is functionalism. So we'll start with dualism. And dualism is what it sounds like. It says that there are at least two kinds of fundamental substances in the world. There's the stuff that's made of matter that physics talks about, right? The material tangible world. And then there's the mind. And dualists think that the mind is not made of the same stuff as the rest of the world. This allows for something like the survival of the mind when the body dies, right? We're, we're talking um, about the spirit or the soul, what the right. Bible, when Jesus said, don't fear him who can destroy the body, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's exactly right. Yep. Yeah. So dualism says, no, of course, every dualist knows that the mind or soul and the brain are very closely connected. If you affect the brain in a certain way, you affect our mental capacities. Also, the reverse is true. If you get very upsetting news that's not a physical trauma, there are physical responses. There's clearly strong interaction between the brain and the soul or mind. But the dualist says that's what it is, interaction between two kinds of things. The physicalist says, no, there's just the one thing there, the brain. What you call your soul or mind just is the brain. Here's where it gets a little tricky. If the mind just is the brain, then to have a certain mental state, you have to have that brain state. For a while, philosophers were happy saying this until we call this the problem of multiple realization. But really, AI is the perfect example. What's one thing we know for sure about Lambda? It has none of the brain states that we have. It doesn't have a biological brain. It's not made of the same kind of material. So actually, it was with the prospect 
of AI and of non-human animals having mental states that the most common view of physicalism kind of came to collapse and be replaced with what we now call functionalism. So what is functionalism? Functionalism says that when you're asking what the mind is, you're asking the wrong question. The mind is not determined by what it's made of, but by what it does. In the same way that a paperweight could be made of glass or stone or a full cup of coffee, because what it means to be a paperweight is to perform a certain function. So functionalists say this is true for mental states as well. So for something to be a mind, it has to be capable of a certain set of complex functions. That in and of itself, most of us would agree, right? To, to be, to have a mind, you have to be able to do certain things. But the functionalist says that's all there is. And so this is where you get Turing, who says if a machine can function in human conversation, just exactly like a human person, they have all the same mental states. And wow. that's a little complicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but that, you, you, it may be a little complicated, but you explained it so very well. I, I get that. So I can hear someone who would consider himself or herself a physicalist or a functionalist mm -hmm. pushing back and saying, you know, dualists consider us just to be ghosts in the machine. Right. Uh, our, our, um, this, what was it? Uh, I'm trying to remember the ancient philosopher that likened uh, Plato's view that, you know, all we are is sailors in the ship. You know, we're, we're just sailing the ship. So therefore, we are not our body. Our body just ends up being vehicles to get us around. Mm -hmm. Whereas the, the Christian view of the human person seems to be a little more holistic. Yes, I am more than my body, but my body is a part of me. So there are some versions like dualism or mm -hmm. another big word we're going to use here, hylomorphism, where... Right you know, the, the soul somehow informs or forms the body and the spirit. How, how would we respond to those who say, you're just treating us as if we are spirits using bodies? We mean more than that, don't we? I think that's right. And actually, um, you know, the contemporary philosopher, James Smith, raises this point a lot. He thinks that this cartoon, this, this view from Descartes, that really what we are is sort of brains on sticks, or just, just that the mind is so separate from the body, uh, that it's actually kind of damaging theologically. I am inclined to agree. So I feel myself pulled towards dualism, largely because I find physicalism wildly implausible. Um, but increasingly, I feel this mismatch with what we would call Cartesian dualism, Descartes' approach to dualism, where the mind, it really is kind of like a sailor in a ship, right? But Thomistic dualism, or closer to hylomorphism, as you said, has a different view where the mind and the body are clearly distinct in some way, but they're also profoundly interwoven. The truth is, a lot of readings of Descartes are the same. Descartes is hard to pin down because he said things that were not always consistent. You're right enough, that's going to happen eventually. I don't blame him. But it's absolutely true that even if we believe that the mind is separable from the body, right? Most dualists don't believe that the mind actually goes off on trips without the body. We're not talking astral projection here, right? So, but just that it is separable from the body. But at the same time, we have to be committed to the fact that it is closely connected to and interwoven with the body. And theologically, I think we need to remember this to remember why bodily resurrection is so important. Christ was not resurrected as a disembodied soul, right? He came back with a resurrected body and that's what we look for as well. So I think that has to shape our view of the mind. 
Yeah, and I think that you bringing up the theological issues here really does now bring it down to the practical application. Right. Um, you think about how many people uh, today are taught to approach uh, emotional and mental problems simply as organic biochemical imbalances. I, I for one, do affirm the role of medicine. Uh, I affirm, I affirm uh, the reality of biochemical imbalances, but it can't be reduced down to mere brain states. There's more going on, right? That's absolutely right. To put in another plug for an excellent book I just read, J.P. Moreland's book, Finding Peace, I think it's called, might be called Finding Quiet, does an excellent job of drawing on both of these, that yes, absolutely, there are physical chemical things going on here. There's a role for medication, but also we are more than just our brain states. We are more than just our body chemistry, and we need to understand, well, the whole person, right? In fact, I'm increasingly drawn to not just dualism, but really kind of tripartism, that we are a body, a mind, and a soul. Um, I'm just scratching the surface of really reading, uh, of digging into that and what exactly that means. But it, it seems right to me. Um, but yes, absolutely. When we have this, what I would call a reductive approach, right? That says that everything can really be just reduced to the kinds of things that physics talks about. I think it's a wildly simplistic view of the world. I even find I mean, talking to atheistic philosophers of science, they also reject this view. Um, even the notion that everything in biology can really be explained in terms of physics. It's a very simplistic approach. You are right that it's pervasive, but I do think that it is starting to be increasingly questioned. Um, I just don't think it captures the complexity of reality. So you studied under Alvin Plantinga in which this was your area. Tell us a little bit about right. your studies. Sure. Well, I went to Notre Dame for graduate school because people like Alvin Plantinga and Peter Van Inwagen were there for me. I could not believe that I could actually go and study with them. And I, I really had a wonderful experience there. Um, when I first got there, I thought I would be most compelled by philosophy of religion. I got very drawn into the question of human action in the world, um, what we call mental causation. But as I started asking questions about mental causation, it of course led me to questions about what is the mind? What do I even think this, this thing we call a person really is? And so um, fortunately for me, when I was at Notre Dame, we also had a visiting professor from Brown named Jaguan Kim. He just died a few years ago. He was definitely a physicalist, um, a materialist, philosophically an atheist or agnostic. Um, so I got to work with him and with Alvin Plantinga, which was fantastic because Kim had a book out that was pretty recent, arguing for physicalism. And my dissertation was essentially a point-by-point -point refutation of his main arguments. Well, I would call it a refutation. I would say rejection. I don't know that I wholly refuted him. I don't mean to um, be so proud. Uh, but so for me, it was wonderful. I got to work with Al Plantinga and somebody who had a very, very different view from myself, Jaguan Kim, and just you know, spend a few years thinking about what the mind is. Now, you are teaching at the University of South uh, Southern Florida? That's right. Uh, and um, you have a new book. Uh, tell us a little bit about your new book. Okay, so it's called Believing Philosophy, A Guide to Becoming a Christian Philosopher. And in retrospect, the title sounds a little intimidating. The goal is to, um, there is a gap, I think, between the church at large, just ordinary people involved in their church, Christians going about their life, and the Christian philosophical community. In fact, 
it's a little surprising to me how often I meet people who seem not to know that there are Christian philosophers. The idea is that philosophy is just this atheistic discipline that studying philosophy will lead you away from your faith. Now, for myself, for my husband, who I met in graduate school, for quite a lot of my friends, the exact opposite happened. Um, the study of philosophy profoundly shaped and strengthened my faith. It transformed my ability to read scripture, transformed my ability to think carefully about my experiences in the world, especially when it comes to the, the very real fact of suffering, human suffering. So I started teaching classes at my church, just Wednesday night classes, a little bit of introduction to philosophy for the Christian layperson. And then my pastor started asking me when I was going to write the book. And I explained to him that I didn't have any time to write a book. I have three children and I'm teaching. But really through God's providence and a number of great connections, it, it came about. And so that's what the book is. The first half of the book is, is both an introduction to philosophy, but also a defense. There's a whole chapter called Christian Objections to Philosophy for people who are concerned that, you know, it's the scripture should be enough and philosophy is atheistic. So that's and then the second half of the book looks more carefully at the, how we ought to understand suffering and evil in the world. So tell us the title of the book again. Believing Philosophy, a guide to becoming a Christian philosopher. And the author is Dr. Dolores Morris, who we've had the privilege of talking to today. Dr. Morris, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And now it's time for On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where professors at Southeastern share what they're reading right now. Today we have Keelan Cook. He's the new director of our sister center, the Center for Great Commission Studies. Keelan, what's on your bookshelf? Yeah, so on my bookshelf right now is one that I'm actually really excited to read. It's called Apostolic Imagination, Recovering a Biblical Vision for the Church's Mission Today. It's by J.D. Payne. And one of the things that I really am interested in in this book is the fact that it, it tries to take us back to some of the first principles conversations when it comes to an understanding of mission as defined by Scripture. And then it really looks at how we in Western missions practice engage in the tasks that Scripture has called us to engage in. And so I'm interested to see how J.D. takes us back to that conversation and allows us to examine what we're doing now with some fresh eyes on what the scriptures would have us to do. One more time, what's the book title? Apostolic Imagination, a Recovering a Biblical Vision for the Church's Mission Today. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Christ and Culture. If you enjoyed the episode, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time. <laughs>